The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. And hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. A busy hour. Amazon under fire. The D.C. Attorney General just filed a lawsuit about an hour ago against the company, saying its price controls are anti-competitive. Now Amazon is fighting back. We will speak with D.C.'s AG himself in a first on CBC interview in just a moment. Plus, in his first 100 days, Intel's new CEO has managed to do more than the company had done in years. Is it enough, or do Intel's problems run too deep? And more spending, more flying, more staying. We're going to look at the big rebound we're experiencing in the travel industry with consumers ready to get out again. But let's start with a quick check on today's markets. We go to Dom Chu for that. Hi, Dom. Even and steady right now. But the caveat here is that we're off session highs. We had some fractional gains for the major indices, the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ earlier on in the session. But right now, we're just about flat. Stop. Quit quiet. But just 34,415 for the Dow. Again, flat, flat for the S&P, just slightly negative now in the Nasdaq. Again, flat as well. So we've now found some still waters for these markets as they were trying to reclaim some of those record highs, especially for the Dow and the S&P. They were trying to move up that way, but we'll see if that trend stays in place. A few of the stocks you want to keep an eye on. In trading today, they've lost a little bit of intraday momentum. However, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, and Capital One over the last year have been stellar outperformers. Yes, the financials trade has been a laggard for quite some time now, but we're going to put stars next to each of these because at one point today, each of these big banks has hit record intraday highs. So keep an eye on those financials, especially J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and Capital One. And then one of the places we are watching very closely is Clorox. You mentioned that kind of get out and go and spend trade. People want to go out on vacation, get back to normal. Well, one stock that has been perhaps a proxy during the COVID era pandemic era has been Clorox, bleach and disinfectants. You can see at one point it was $144 stock over the last two years. It got as high as 239. But now we've lost roughly a quarter of our value since the highs that we saw over the past year. Now, Clorox has been one of those interesting trades because it's been an orderly march up throughout the pandemic. And you can see there a rather orderly march down here as people have unwound that trade. So the pandemic trade, yes, it's playing out in airlines and travel stocks, but also in bleach and disinfectants as well, Kel. I'll send things back it's over to you. It's come almost full circle. It's amazing. Dom, thanks. Yeah. We begin now with our developing story out of Washington as the D.C. Attorney General files a lawsuit against Amazon. Let's get over to Eamon Javers with the very latest. Eamon? Kelly, remember, this is the attorney general of the District of Columbia, not of the United States. It's an important distinction. But here's the allegation from the D.C. attorney general. They're saying, uh, look, Amazon fixed prices here overall, and that's anti-competitive. They're saying that uh, because they have these contracts with third-party sellers that can't allow them to list products for less on other pro- uh, other platforms, that means that the third-party sellers are incorporating those fees that Amazon charges into the other platforms. Because they're not allowed to charge less elsewhere, they have to then effectively plus up the fees that they're charging on these other platforms. And therefore, the DCAG is saying that is raising prices across 
the internet landscape. Now, here's the response from Amazon. They're saying the D.C. Attorney General has it exactly backwards. They're saying sellers set their own prices for the products they offer in our store. Amazon takes pride in the fact that we offer low prices across the broadest selection. And like any store, we reserve the right not to highlight offers to customers that are not priced competitively. The relief the AG seeks would force Amazon to feature higher prices to customers, oddly going against core objectives of antitrust law. So that's the response from Amazon. The allegation here from the Attorney General of the District of Columbia is that Amazon, by requiring those third-party resellers, retailers, uh, to basically have higher prices, is in effect raising prices across the entire Internet and using its position as a giant player in the market anti-competitively, and that's why he's filed this antitrust lawsuit. Kelly, back over to you. And we will pick it up there uh, with the man himself. Eamon, thank you, our Eamon Javers. For more, let's bring in Washington, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine in a first on CNBC interview. He joins us on the CNBC Newsline. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, so what's your response to Amazon's uh, argument here that your lawsuit would force Amazon to feature higher prices? Well, I think uh, with all due respect to Amazon, a, a great company that I respect a lot, it hasn't answered the question about its most favored nation's agreements and the requirements it poses on third-party sellers. I think Eman did a great job of explaining the problem, and the problem is that you have third-party sellers who clearly want to access the Internet and sell their goods, but if they want access to the largest marketplace, they've got to put in their price a high commission, upwards to 40% from Amazon, and then agree that they can't sell their product, not not only, not even on their own website, let alone any other platform, for a price lower than that that they put on Amazon. So Amazon is well aware of these most favored nations clauses. You might remember back in 2013, 2014, 2015, Europeans, German and UK, raised concerns about the same kinds of clauses. Amazon backed away and changed its policy. Sure, although I Congress believe that, also yeah, I was just going to say, I think Europe and, and the U.S. have so, sort of a different approach when it comes to uh, antitrust. And in this case, it's all about the consumer. I think the one place where this is interesting to me is that, yes, Amazon has 40 or 50 percent of e-commerce, but there's still 5 percent of total retail spending in the U.S. You know, sellers who want to sell for lower prices literally can go elsewhere, take their business with them, whether it's Walmart.com, whether it's a physical store. There's a lot of competition. Target, for instance. So, you know, the argument here is that Amazon is simply insisting that they get the best price. What's wrong with that? Well, let me finish the point, though, on the MFN clauses. Um, Congress also expressed deep concern about the MFN clauses. And sure enough, Amazon sought to placate Congress's concern, but actually did a, a bait and switch. They changed the name of the clause and put right. the same language in another part of its agreement. And with respect to the U.S. marketplace, and you indicated that uh, the marketplace, according to Amazon, is 5%. Of course, that's, that's Amazon's definition of the marketplace that includes a brick and, and mortar. Exactly. Um, what we're focused on, of course, is the online marketplace, and the definition of marketplace will be an issue before the court. But my, I guess my point is, if you focus on just the online marketplace, that to me, by definition, seems to be an upper scale customer, right? I mean, a, the correlation of Amazon Prime members, for instance, is the wealthier parts of the U.S. You know, if people want cheaper prices, they're usually going to Dollar General. 
Um, if sellers want to sell for a cheaper price elsewhere, they're, they're certainly welcome to do that. So who exactly is being harmed here if a lot of people are actually paying Amazon prices for the convenience? Well, I think you're taking a little bit uh, too much of Amazon's argument. Again, think about what they're doing. What they're doing is they're making third-party sellers price the goods throughout the Internet on Amazon and on other sites at an artificially high price that includes Amazon's commission. And if they want to offer their goods for market at a lower price, which is a good thing uh, for our economy and a good thing uh, for consumers and certainly a good thing for third-party sellers, they cannot because of Amazon's Well, they can, provision. but they can just no longer sell to Amazon. So I well, take your right. point that that's, a, right, that's exactly how the market leader tries to, make, to stay the market a, leader, right? But you're I think, exactly right. Yeah, so, no, that's and, exactly and I, how the market leader uh, uses its dominance to force the third-party seller to either access its marketplace and other marketplaces under Amazon's term or not play on the Amazon marketplace. And we think that is an incorrect use of monopoly power. So where do we go from here? Do you expect other states, you know, I'm thinking of uh, other big tech lawsuits that we've seen, uh, multi-state, I'm thinking maybe Facebook is the example of this. Maybe it started sure. in Texas. A lot of other states signed on. It becomes a a much bigger um, deal, not deal, but you know what I'm saying, there's, there's more, more states behind it. Is, should we expect a similar timeline to play out uh, with your case against Amazon here? Can't really comment on what other states will do. Uh, it is true uh, that states oftentimes join each other's suit. Uh, I'm sure that they're going to be interested in looking at the complaint and evaluating our theories as well as uh, what our expert testimony would be. Uh, and we'll see how it ensues. We feel very uh, good about our case. We think at the end of the day we're going to be on CNBC eventually talking about how Amazon has moved away from the most favored nations agreements. Well, we uh, would love to have that discussion here uh, if you'll come back. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you. Washington, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine. By the way, Amazon shares were fractionally lower after the news of that lawsuit. We'll continue to keep an eye on them all day. Coming up, it's all about the money supply. What happens to stocks when the Fed's wall of cash starts to reverse? We're going to look at data that just came out on that next. Plus, a ban on bans. Speaking of states going after big tech, Florida will now find social media companies that deplatform politicians. But is it legal? We have the latest and the potential fallout for the likes of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Investors will tell you that one of the reasons for the massive market rally over the past year has been the Fed's huge liquidity injection. But as the pandemic recedes, will the money also dry up? 
And is that why, why crypto and other speculative parts of the market have started to struggle? For more on all this, I'm joined by our own Rick Santelli, along with Greg Ipp, the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Rick, kick things off for us. Where are we on the money supply? Oh, my God. Money supply is up to 20.1 trillion. So let's go over this. We're talking M2. What's M2? M2 is a portion of the money supply that includes cash, checking deposits. Um, how did the government get stimulus checks? Savings deposits, money market securities. You add all those up and you roughly get what in the old days used to be one of the most important metrics. Money supply used to come out at 1.30 on a Thursday back when I traded in the 70s and 80s. It was the definitive number, but it's hard to keep track. But roughly, consider this, 20.1 trillion on M2 means that it's increased 30% since February of 2020, meaning right before COVID, it was at 15.5 trillion. And why this is so nerve-wracking is that if the Fed doesn't really have control of money supply, they're never going to really have control of inflation. Does one equal the other? No. The key secret is spending. So whether it's in savings accounts of businesses, institutions, or just you, viewers, because your check from stimulus is still in your savings account, the act of spending that is going to reinvigorate inflation, and that is what many are concerned about yep. at this point in time. And we have the, let's leave this chart up, Greg, as I speak with you, this M2 money stock chart, and I want to draw people's attention to the flattening out on the very, very far right side of it. It seems crazy to say oh, we've come down to only 24% growth year on year, but that's how the market works. They go, well, the peak looks like it was in February at 27% year on year. It's starting to come down. Where do we go from here? So uh, let's go back to what Rick was saying. We know that the main element of the money stock, and this takes, you, this takes me all the way back in my uh, textbook, is bank deposits. And we know that bank deposits are going up because the Treasury has been depositing those stimulus checks in those uh, accounts. Uh, some people have been receiving unemployment insurance checks in those accounts. Some people have uh, basically got a lot of um, pay. A lot of their pay has been accumulated there, and they haven't been able to spend it because of restrictions. So we know there's a great big stock of, in some sense, pent-up savings on consumer balance sheets that's just sitting out there waiting to be spent. And that is indeed one of the reasons why some folks like Larry Summers in today's Washington Post mm -hmm. say there could be an inflation risk ahead of us. But, Kelly, I want to separate that from what I think is really troubling the market right now. And that is that it is the threat of that inflation possibility, plus the actual data that we've been getting recently, like the CPI, right. the PPI, that has people worrying that the Fed is going to be raising rates sooner rather than later. And by the way, some of the real economy stuff has tapered off a little bit. Today, the new home sales data were a little bit soft, you know, the retail sales. So you have, in some sense, a little whiff of this, you know, I hesitate to say it, almost stagflationary feel to the last mm -hmm. few weeks of data. A little bit of trouble on the inflation front, a little bit of trouble on the real economy side. Not a great combination for uh, the equity market. And, and we've talked about this, too, but, you know, people often look at this, the M2 figures, Rick, but the velocity, the number of times that's turning over is at record lows right now. In fact, there's so much cash parked in banks that they are pushing it back to the Fed. I mean, that's what's been happening this week. They're saying $350 billion. They're pushing back to the Fed. They're basically saying we can't hold on to this cash. You have to take it back from us. So we'll see how policymakers react to that, Rick. But you almost wonder, and this is something that, that Brian Reynolds had put in one of his client notes this week. He says, all of this cash could ultimately go into something like the stock market and be really, really bullish for equity. So the question is kind of, 
if people take it out and what do they do with it? Do they put it into stocks? Do they spend it in the real economy? Does that lead to more inflation or not? Listen, it's already some of it's gone into stocks. Think Reddit. Think all the things we've been covering the last several months. And you hit a key that I didn't mention. Bank reserves changing, the money going back and forth between Fed and Treasury. All of this is potentially a keg of dynamite. What we're arguing about is, are we going to light the fuse? And yes, Greg Ipps, right? There's a lot of things regarding inflation, especially looking back a year when inflation was so light during the worst part of COVID that may be distorting the picture. But you need to pay attention to this. Money supply has never been in the zip code ever. It's never even been close. And mm-hmm. it is something that could turn into a big deal for pricing. But remember, stocks are inflation adjusted. They should deal with that relatively okay. Right. And that's, that's the argument is if people realize this, uh, Greg, they don't want to be sitting on cash. They, they put that money to work. And ironically, this is behind the appeal of crypto. Right. So if I could yeah, sort you know, of like direct our attention elsewhere. So, um, a long time to realize that the Federal Reserve isn't watching the money supply very carefully. And what I think you should really look at, the thing that really tells you just how hard the Fed is pressing on the accelerator here is the real, that is to say, the inflation-adjusted 10-year note. You yeah. just look at the, the yield on the tip bond, right, Kelly? Mm-hmm. It's like minus 1%. It's been around that for about a year. That has only happened twice in modern history. The other time was in 2012. That was a risk-off environment. We were still shaking off the global financial crisis, with the Eurozone debt crisis, P.E. ratios were way lower than they are today. Today, it's full-on risk on, and it's being juiced by the fact that we have all this, like, demand that we were just talking about from the stimulus, from all that money floating around. Mm-hmm. It's from the fact that real interest rates are negative. And this is why you've got to watch the Fed carefully and whether they start to make noises about whether they're getting a little less comfortable with their view that inflation doesn't become a problem for another three or four years. As soon as that view starts to uh, percolate, people start to price in taper. That real yield starts to turn less negative, starts to head towards positive territory. And that real negative real yield is such an important underpinning for all the crazy stuff you see going on, whether it's super high tech stocks, super low credit spreads, the the Dodge coin, the crypto coin, the SPACs, all that stuff. Once that interest rate support falls away, then I think it's basically look out below. I think a lot of this stuff starts to look very, very fragile. Yeah, minus 0.88%. And Rick, I know you're yeah. trying to get, we got to go, though. I mean, this is the longest conversation okay. we can ever have about M2 and velocity real quick, and, and real, real yield. You know what? We can't. <laughs> We cannot let the Fed off the hook. Greg Gibbs right. Real interest rates are negative. Tips are negative. Why? Because of the Fed. Because of the Fed. They push policies to make the risk the only appetite to satisfy. So if it backfires, if we're pointing to the protagonist or the antagonist, I'm pointing at the antagonist, and that's the Fed in this equation. All right. It feels like we're still early on in this book uh, as well. Guys, thank you both. Rick Santelli and Greg Ipp of The Wall Street Journal. Speaking of the Fed, on Closing Bell today, don't miss an exclusive interview with San Francisco Fed's President Mary Daly at 3 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. Coming up, we are out with our ninth annual Disruptor 50 list. And this year, there's one industry with more companies on the list than any other category. We'll tell you what it is. As we head to break, don't forget, in honor of Mark Haynes, we're auctioning off an NFT of his famous Haynes Bottom when he called the low in the S&P 500 in 2009. All proceeds go to Autism Speaks, a favorite charity of his, and the Council for Economic Education, which focuses on financial literacy. To bid, go to mintable.app slash CNBC. Mark Cuban leading the charge right now. John Ledger also in it. 
and you still have time to bid. It ends tomorrow morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. We're back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets, which are way off the highs when the Dow is up 110 points. It's hanging on to just a 13-point gain right now. The S&P is higher by under a point, and the Nasdaq is up by 18. Here are some of the movers. We're watching Vimeo, the video platform, sharply lower in its trading debut today. This was a spinoff from IAC. Vimeo is down 17% to 43 and change right now. And parent company IAC, of which it was spun off, is down 5%. Over in AMC land, those shares are down 5% today. Actually, I'm sorry, they're up about that amount. Uh, This stock is up 20% now in two days. It's been quite a snapback run here for AMC. It's at $14.33. We're also watching the airlines as this reopening trade takes hold. Making headlines right now, we're hearing from the United Airlines CEO who says he expects to see a big ramp up in business travel as early as September. This is an area investors have been really concerned about for some of these names like United and Delta. UAL shares are up 3% today. And CNBC is out with our ninth annual Disruptor 50 list, highlighting the private companies leading the way out of this pandemic. Julia Borson is here with a look at the industry dominating this year's list. Julia? Well, there are more fintech companies, Kelly, than any other category on this year's Disruptor 50 list. There are 11 in total, including Robinhood at number one. Now, it reportedly has more than 20 million users, though it hasn't officially said that number of users that it has since it reported 13 million a year ago. Now, Robinhood is joined by other consumer-facing services, Chime, Nubank in Latin America, Tala, which offers microloans in India and other emerging markets, while Ripple offers global payments. There are even more, though, B2B fintechs on the list. Stripe and Checkout.com and Flutterwave offer online payment solutions, while Marketa issues digital credit cards and Brex powers small business expense management. This all comes as VC pour $46 billion into fintech companies worldwide so far this year. That's already more than the $43 billion invested in all of 2020. Now, VCs are following consumers. A majority of consumers accelerated their adoption of fintech solutions as a result of COVID lockdowns. And only 20% of consumers say they think that traditional financial institutions are evolving fast enough to keep up with consumer needs. This according to a recent Bloomberg Capital report. Now, we do expect fintech to dominate the next wave of disruptor IPOs. Marketa filed its public S1 with an IPO expected soon, and Robinhood has filed privately, and we are awaiting its public S1. You can find much more about the list in my article on Robinhood and why it's in the number one spot on CNBC.com. Kelly? Right. Julia, thank you very much, Julia Borston. And as she said, for that full list, Uh, CNBC.com has the Disruptor 50 for 2021. Coming up in Power Lunch, we're also going to be speaking with the CEO of healthcare tech firm Natira. They come in at 26 on the list this year. Just wait till you hear what they're up to. Ahead here, Florida is banning social media bans. Lordstown whiffed on results. And a look at the king of luxury. It's all coming up in rapid fire. The exchange is back in a moment.
Welcome back. It's time for Rapid Fire. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. And here to break down our headlines, Robert Frank, Deirdre Jabosa, and Neelai Patel, who is editor-in-chief of The Verge and a CNBC contributor, all join me this hour. First, this one really made me sit up straight. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing a bill barring the likes of Twitter and Facebook from knowingly deplatforming users. It's requiring social media companies to be transparent about content moderation practices they interestingly have a carve out for what appears to be Disney, uh, which owns. Well, let's put it this way. They have a carve out for companies that own a large theme park or entertainment venue. Disney does fit the bill. Disney World is in Orlando. The bill's legality is in question, Neelai. Um, but I think it, Ron DeSantis would probably say it doesn't matter. My intention is clear. And this is an effort to try to make these companies more accountable uh, to the public that doesn't agree with their politics, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, look, it's rapid fire. I don't have to be perfectly nice, right? <laughs> this is a hilariously corrupt and deeply unconstitutional speech, speech regulation. But is it, is it popular, Neelai? Is it, is it popular? I mean, that's what I think is more interesting, right? Like, if you're Ron DeSantis, you're not doing this just because, you know, you're, it, you felt like it today. You're doing it because you're carving out Florida as this bastion of freedom for people and money and low taxes and we're not going to deplatform. And, and of course, they, you know, these articles point out a number of issues they've had with people running for office and saying all sorts of awful things and how to do that. But what do you think is the real message here if you're facing? What do you do about this movement? Well, look, I think a lot of people are very unhappy with social media platforms and how they moderate on both sides of the aisle. I think that's a pretty politically safe place to say uh, to start from. Facebook and Twitter have deeply complicated moderation problems. YouTube has deeply complicated moderation problems. This law is bad, and it was passed for political signaling purposes, not to actually address the policy issues. So this is a speech regulation. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all those companies have First Amendment rights of their own. If you are going to regulate how they express their First Amendment rights in terms of what content they promote algorithmically, what content they promote in trending, all that stuff. You have to pass what the Supreme Court calls strict scrutiny. You have to write a narrowly tailored government regulation to achieve a specific purpose. But I wonder, now, this isn't that, right? Like, how but, is accepting Disney narrowly tailored? Right, no. How is defining a journalistic <laughs> enterprise as anything with over 100 million active users narrowly tailored? I take your These point, but I wonder, definition. Let, me, let me bring in Deirdre on this. Deirdre, are they protected, though, are the companies so, so putting aside the politics of this and whether the, these moves are popular, aren't the companies protected by Section 230? You know, aren't websites and platforms yes. allowed to set their own rules? And this is the our discussion we were having about Amazon top of the hour. Right. If you want to be on our platform, these are the rules. Take them or leave them. Yeah, I mean, you said this, Neela said this, this is sort of political theater. Uh, Governor DeSantis is trying to make a point here. Is this going to receive legal challenges Yes, of course it is. And he's doing this to make a statement. It's also ironic that this is happening in Florida where, you know, Miami's making a big push for tech because of a lack of regulation. Um, but, you know, it also is part of a broader trend that we're seeing in tech is that federal regulators and lawmakers, they're moving slowly. So increasingly, you're seeing states take this into their own hands. Probably some other states are going to have more success uh, than Florida. But, you know, you see it from Arizona to Virginia on things like privacy and mm -hmm. app store fees. Robert, what would you add, especially as somebody acutely aware of all of the companies and, you know, ultra high net worth individuals? And I mean, the, this move to Florida that Ron DeSantis seems to be trying to capitalize on is real. 
Easy solution, Kelly. As you mentioned, it exempts a company that has a theme park. So all Facebook, YouTube, <laughs> and Twitter have to do is open a theme park in Florida. I mean, how fun would it be for families once they've gone to Universal, once they've gone to Disney, to go to Twitter land or Facebook world? How fun would that be? And then Sounds there's no awful. problem. That's genius. I'm almost going to end rapid fire right there. Well. That is, uh, is the best idea I've ever heard and a, and a clever way for me to move on to our next topic. And that next topic is Lordstown Motors. Take a look at the shares today, which are tanking after the EV company slashed its production guidance for the year and says it needs to raise more capital. Remember, Lordstown took a huge hit last week after Wolf Research downgraded it to underperform and gave it a liquidation target of a buck. Lordstown warns that it expects to produce, at best, half the number of vehicles it previously forecast for 2021. They're also projecting higher-than-expected costs and lower year-end liquidity. And, Deirdre, people were really unhappy about that downgrade last week. Obviously, investors in Lordstown thought it was extremely unfair. Um, is, is that call vindicated to some extent now? Well, I think this highlights a broader problem with SPACs. I mean, not being able to fulfill these rosy targets only months in some cases after they've made them. We spoke to the Lucid CEO a few weeks ago on TechCheck, and he couldn't back up a target that they had released just two months earlier. There's also, you know, Congress looking into the SPAC boom. So this is sort of another illustration of this, and investors have to be really careful. Yes, SPACs are a way of getting companies to market quicker and allowing investors to get in earlier, but these projections can sometimes be out of line, and that's what Lordstown's Motors is really showing here. Nilay, and there's more where that came from. A quick word, Nilay? Yeah, I mean, I think the big bet for Lordstown, for Rivian, for a bunch of these new car companies, that they would be faster than the old car companies. Lordstown in particular was supposed to get a pickup truck out faster than everybody else. They're not able to do that, and Ford's in the game with the F-150 Lightning, GM's in the game with the Hummer pickup truck. They have a steep hill to climb against car makers that understand the threat is existential. Yeah, and that's, again, this sort of incumbent versus startup question and tension that you can feel across the entire market right now. All right, we have a shakeup among the ultra-wealthy to report. Yesterday, LVMH CEO Bernard Arnault became the richest man in the world, squeaking past Jeff Bezos. Two global trends are propelling the French tycoon's wealth, the surge in European luxury stocks and the primacy of the Chinese consumer who now accounts for about half of total global luxury spend. Shares of LVMH are up 77% in the past year. And apparently, Jeff Bezos, Robert, is back on top today, according to Forbes, but these two are now pretty much neck and neck. And we spend a lot of time talking about the tech tycoons here. I think people forget about LVMH. Yeah, actually, I think based on the share price today, Amazon down a tiny bit on some of that MGM news. Hmm. LVMH up a little bit because Bernardo No is buying shares. And look, LVMH is a giant machine that just keeps buying brands and executing perhaps better than any other sort of conglomerate in the world. And they're based in Europe, so we don't talk about them that much. But, you know, they've, they've acquired Tiffany. They've already started sort of ramping that up, putting it into their system. And their secret, aside to understanding China perhaps better than any company in the world, is data. And so when you go to one of their stores, whether it's their Berluti shoe store, Fendi bag store, Vuitton, Dior, they have your data. And then they, they can then cross-sell you all the other things they, they think you will want from all their other offerings. And, and they just there's no stopping them. And their growth from China, China is going to be accounting for half of all luxury purchases by 2025. And again, no one has cracked that market better than LVMH and Bernard Arnault, who has been there for decades. And Deirdre, what would you add, I mean, especially about the Chinese market and 
it's both a blessing and in some ways a curse. I mean, inevitably, wherever the Chinese are spending their money, the politics become complicated for any of those countries dealing with China on any sort of human rights or any other kind of issue. Yes, that is that is a very good point sometimes. And critics say that you have to compromise to be able to operate, let alone rake in huge amounts of money from China. But, you know, I lived there and I remember this was years ago. The luxury boom is real. Their luxury stores are bigger, nicer, better staff than anything that we see over here. And that was years ago. That's only been growing. And this whole idea, of course, during the pandemic, they were closed, but a lot of the time. However, this idea of revenge buying representing a big rebound for luxury goods in China is, is going revenge to be interesting buying? to continue to watch. What is what is revenge buying? <laughs> yes. Robert knows what I'm talking about, right? It's that you weren't able to spend your money during the pandemic, so you're going to go out and buy these big ticket items as sort of a revenge oh, buying. I'm I thought it was really like sure in a divorce or something. Yeah, like, a, <laughs> I, all right, you leaving me, I'm, I'm going and spending your money. No, a revenge, what do we call it? I guess that's what people are calling it. Victory. We've gone from victory gardens to Splurging? revenge buying. Splurging, right, exactly. Treating yourself, Singles Day. Uh, there's so many places we could go with that. Before we move along, uh, before we end, though, today, we want to talk about the return to the workplace or maybe people ready to leave the workplace. The revenge vacation, should we call it? Worn out workers are ready to make up for their lost vacation time. According to new research from global staffing firm Robert Half, 44 percent of professionals surveyed say they are more burned out on the job today compared with a year ago. And they're planning to do something about it. One in three plan to take more than three weeks of vacation time this year, Robert. Yeah. You know, Kelly, you had a great discussion with Steve Leisman uh, last week about productivity. I think one of the reasons we've seen such a surge in productivity is that over the past year, we're all at home and there's really no separation between work and life. I'm always on my computer because it's there and because I'm here. And, you know, I go to the gym every day. But beyond that, I'm always working. And so I think as people start to go back to the office, as there are other things to do, I think that productivity could come under pressure. And yes, people will finally, finally take vacation because there are places to go. And we've heard, Neil, I have companies requiring their employees to take days off, you know, to ameliorate this situation, because where it leads, frankly, is people leaving or just, you know, finding some other thing to do. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of companies try to stem the post-pandemic attrition wave that is just obviously coming. And I don't know if it can be stemmed. I think a lot of people are rethinking their entire lives after spending a year looking at the same screen for work and for entertainment uh, at home. And now they're they're thinking about what they're going to do next. I think that will actually be great. Uh, and it'll be very it's going to be I think it's going to be a very creative and innovative time. Do you have any personal news to share? I mean, uh, I, you know, so I'm very passionate about it. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm uh, I, I don't think I can be employed anywhere else but the Verge. So I'm going to stay right where I'm. Good. I uh, hope that means many future rapid fires. Thank you all very, very much for your time today. Robert Frank, Deirdre Bosa and Neelai Patel. Coming up today marks Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger's 100th day at the helm. And the stock is underperforming the semi-sector, leaving some investors to wonder if he's the right man for the job. Whether it's too little, too late for Intel, right after this. Welcome back. Today marks Pat Gelsinger's 100th day as CEO of Intel. In that time, he's outlined a plan to bolster the company's manufacturing capabilities. But shares are down about 8% since its first day on the job. So are his ideas just too little, too late? Josh Lipton is here with a closer look at this legacy chip company. Josh? 
Kelly, we are going to come roaring back. That is what Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger recently told our own Jim Cramer on Mad Money as he now predicts a stronger future for the chip giant. I checked in with tech analyst Patrick Moorhead. He says Gelsinger is the right man for this job, a respected technologist, an engineer's engineer. That means he can pinpoint problems and then independently and quickly decide how to best tackle them. Moorhead says Gelsinger has already impacted Intel culture, pivoting the company from being on the defensive to getting back on the offensive and laying out a very bold plan to resolve the company's manufacturing challenges. Remember, Intel did stumble with its chip manufacturing technology, and that allowed rivals like AMD and NVIDIA to capitalize to build out capacity and make money by manufacturing chips for others. Gelsinger has also laid out a plan to build new chip factories. Patrick Moorhead argues that plan does make sense. Question for investors, though, can Pat Gelsinger really pull this off and execute even as competition? remains fierce. Kelly, back to you. Josh, thank you very much. For more on this, we want to bring in Stacey Razgon. He is a senior VP and analyst covering semis with Bernstein Research. Stacey, it's good to have you. Um, here. Intel's challenges have been well documented, but is Pat Gelsinger at least on the right path towards their renaissance? Oh, oh yeah. So, so don't get me wrong. I, Pat is absolutely the right guy for the job. He's probably the guy they should have hired two years ago. They couldn't close the deal at that point. Now, now that being said... He's, he's not a magician either, right? Um, and they're in a tough spot. And, and to his credit, I think he recognizes it. I, I mean, the phrase I've used is, I mean, they're in a knife fight. He, he, he knows it, right? Um, he's, and, and what's he doing? He's, he's doubling down on, on spending and investments in the company. He's doubling down on CapEx. He's reducing the, the buybacks. Like, that's not the area that they're focusing on. And he's gearing up for this multi-year knife fight that they're about to enter. And like, it hasn't even gotten started yet, though. It's like you asked the question earlier, you know, the stock's under whatever you said, 8%, it's underperformed since he took the job. And like, does that mean he's the right like, guy for the job? This is not something that plays out in three months. Sure. <laughs> we, we've just gotten started. I mean, this is a three, four, five plus year journey. And anybody that's in the stock day has to be ready for that battle and the ups and the downs of that conflict over the next like several years. This is a but multi-year so yesterday on the show, we were talking about how much time it takes to build a chip factory and yeah. kind of get it fully up and running and then tailor the chips for customers. And we were years and years yeah. and years. So yeah. when you say three to five years for his tenure, I mean, is that even a long enough time horizon for Intel to catch up? I, well, define catch up, right? So, I mean, if we're talking about the process deficiency issues, remember, they had issues with process technology. They are not going to catch up on, on process. TSMC is ahead Right. The best that they can hope for, I think, is to stop the gap from getting any wider. The only way they're going to catch up or close the gap is if TSMC screws something up. And, and look, that's always possible. This stuff is very, very difficult to do, but they're not showing any signs of that. Mm. Uh, the best I think they can hope for is to try to stabilize the process and they'll have to go on from there. The one strategic question where he seems to clearly have laid his bets is that Intel is going to manufacture these chips, that it's not yes, going yes. to pursue the outsourcing that has made NVIDIA and AMD so successful. Now, I understand why Intel has to do that, but is that going to end up being a losing battle? Well, remember, they are going to outsource some, right? They are going to be, and, and they do outsource today. So they, there is a mix, but the, the, the core products, they are going to do themselves. I think they have to, especially given everything else that's going on broadly, geopolitically and everything else, they cannot afford to put TSMC or any other company in charge of their destiny, right? And again, you, you can look at AMD, for example. AMD had to do this, and they've been very successful. But in some sense, the amount of, of share that AMD has been able to take is in some sense dependent on the amount of capacity that they can secure at their third-party manufacturers. Intel cannot afford 
to allow another company like a TSMC or frankly anybody else to be in charge of their destiny. They have to take that on themselves. And, and, and so absolutely, I think that's, that's, that's what they have to do. Right? And but how it's, long, it's going to be a journey. Exactly. How long a journey and should U.S. taxpayers subsidize it? Well, so that, that's a whole other thing. It's the, and how long is it's going to be a multi-year journey. And, and again, like the, the current roadmap doesn't change. It's this 2023 and beyond that we can maybe start to see some, some changes in, in this. But it's, it's going to be a multi-year. In terms of whether or not the U.S. You know, taxpayer should subsidize it, I mean, that, that's a political question. There are broad concerns over, you know, the U.S. being too dependent on foreign sources for semiconductors. And frankly, there are only three companies that, that even in theory can do anything approaching leading edge. It, it's Intel, Samsung and TSMC. All three will be increasing, I think, their investments in the U.S., but the Intel is the only U.S. company. Yeah. So certainly there's going to be a bias toward that. I think. Fair enough. And maybe that will help uh, help kind of push them down this path. Stacey, thank you for your time today. Great to check you in bet. with thank you. Thank you. Stacey Raskin of Bernstein. Coming up, Americans are ready to travel and ready to spend to make it happen. We have the latest numbers on boarding and budgets. This is airline stocks are seeing some nice gains across the board today. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime using the CNBC app. We're back in a minute. As Memorial Day approaches, the travel industry is gearing up for a big rebound, and we've got team coverage of the recovery. Seema Modi is tracking the increase in consumer travel budgets, and Philip Bow has the latest on passenger traffic as we inch closer to 2019 levels. Seema, let's start with you. Well, Kelly, the amount of money Americans are willing to spend on travel is growing. Morning Consult found that 43% of summer travelers planning to spend more than $1,000 on their trips, including 20% who said they're budgeting more than $1,500. 30% of those with summer travel plans said they'll stay with friends or family, down from 57% back in the winter, which suggests Americans are becoming more comfortable staying at a hotel. And looking at demographics per TripAdvisor, high-income millennials are most likely to spend their pandemic savings on travel as restrictions ease and uh, the vaccine rolls out. Experiences, Kelly, are also making a big comeback. Uh, the most popular activities being booked by travelers on TripAdvisor include Indoor skydiving in Virginia, snorkeling in the Caribbean, and wine tasting in Lisbon. Worth noting, both Airbnb and TripAdvisor offer customers bookable experiences. In fact, pre-COVID, uh, it was a fast-growing business for both those two companies. You know, and to me, it would I would expect a lot of this to be priced in already. So it's interesting to watch a lot of the reopening trades still work. Uh, cruise lines, for instance, are all up today again? Yeah, uh, another strong day for the cruise lines after President Biden passed a law that allows cruise ships to sail directly from Seattle to Alaska. In the past, if you were a foreign flagship, you had to stop in Canada, which right now has a cruise ban. So this specific law opens the door to allowing cruising to return to that state this summer, Kel. All right. Seema, thank you. Again, those names up about 3% in the session, building on their gains year to date. Now for the latest passenger levels in the airports and how airlines are handling the, handling the rise in demand, let's turn to Phil LeBeau. Phil, what do we know? Kelly, they're adding flights because there are more people who are flying. If you take a look at the latest passenger levels, and this comes to us from the TSA, we're up around that 1.7 to 1.9 million every day who are being screened by the TSA. So we're edging closer to 2 million people per day 
just for a context, down 32% last week versus the same week in 2019. So not all the way back, but getting closer. In terms of airfares, people are willing to pay more. Their airfares are up 16% April and May, according to Hopper. The summer average will be about $283 round trip. That's for domestic flights. And then 2021 fares, I know people are saying, hey, they're going through the roof. They're still not at 2019 levels. Down about 4% is the expectation for this summer. Nonetheless, there is an airline uh, analyst day going on today. Wolf Research uh, holding it, talking with a number of executives. You talked about United CEO earlier talking about business travel. Take a look at shares of United. It is raising its guidance in terms of demand and revenue as they improve. Expects to be EBITDA positive by the end of June and then for all of the third quarter. Also take a look at Alaska Airlines out with an 8K early this morning, actually late last night. The airline saying that it expects Q3 leisure demand at 2019 levels. And finally, there is American. A lot of people asking, what's going on with business travel? It is slowly coming back. But American says it's still down 70 percent compared to the same time in 2019. Many people believe, and, you, and earlier today, Kelly, you talked about the United CEO. Many people believe that will start to tra- change in the fall when we start to see perhaps more business travelers uh, getting on flights. Phil, can I can I pivot here and, and throw something completely different at you because we have about 90 seconds left? Sure. This a Tesla headline out of Europe about the, you know, the charging issues with their vehicles. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that and the implications for Tesla shareholders? Is this a big deal? Uh, this 16 grand, I think it is, that they're going to have to pay out to people affected? Uh, it depends on how widespread the ultimate impact is. I have not read through in terms of how many vehicles uh, will be impacted that they're going to have to pay through. And look, it's not just Tesla. It's all of the automakers are going to be transitioning now into a world where if there are battery issues or charging issues, you know, they're, they're putting these packs into these vehicles and it's no different than any other component that if it fails or if there is a problem, it's going to impact a wide range of vehicles and a large number of vehicles. You know what it made me think of was net neutrality. I mean, that's the last time I've heard throttling in the headlines, this whole idea of, you know, fast lanes and who gets priority. And it just never occurred to me to even think about that as a software issue in cars. Uh, Software is where it's all at, especially with electric vehicles, Kelly. And that'll be the thing that people are going to be watching in terms of servicing of electric vehicles over the next decade. Yeah. It's a whole area still uh, still to come. Story will continue to follow. Phil, thanks so much. We appreciate it. As always, our Phil LeBeau. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.